Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. Our exploration of the Earth's fluctuating environment is an extraordinary story of human perception and scientific endeavour, which began much earlier than you might think. This month, we hear from Alice Bell as she explores climate change science's earliest steps in the 18th and 19th centuries, through the point when concerns started to rise in the 1950s, right up to the modern day. You can learn more in Alice's latest book, Our Biggest Experiment, A History of the Climate Crisis. This talk was recorded from our theatre at the Royal Institution on the 22nd of July, 2021. Remember, you can get tickets to our upcoming events by heading to our website, rigb.org. And please remember to rate and review this episode. Leave us a comment to let us know what you think. When people talk about the climate crisis, they often throw a lot of numbers at you. Uh, sometimes these numbers come alone. Sometimes they turn up with friends. Sometimes you get a whole load of them lined up uh, along together, plotted on a graph. Now, we're often told that we should think something about these numbers, uh, that they are significant in some way, um, that they are politically significant or economically significant or even emotionally so. They're offered up as cautionary tales, as ghost stories. Um, they're included in official government advice or put across placards on protests. But... Um, the, I mean, these are numbers that have been bitterly fought over, some of them. You know, people have, have, have been driven to all sorts of horrible emotional states over them. Um, they are, behind them, also often really quite stark issues of life and death. And yet, we're very rarely told much about where the, these numbers came from. I mean, particularly this graph really was, I think this, in many ways, was my way into thinking about the history of the climate crisis. I saw this graph. It's given, it's, for those of you who know a bit about climate science, it's the Keeling curve. Um, and it's called Keeling after a scientist called Keeling who set up a project to, to, develop, to collect this data, data. And it's called a curve because it curves up, although it zigzags. And I saw this graph and I looked at it and I went, oh, it starts just before the 1960s. And I, I worked in science policy. I thought, well done, scientist, managing to get a project that could run from the late 1960s all the way to now. And I was a bit puzzled as to how he managed, or the early, uh, late 1950s all the way to now kind of puzzled at that, but also, who was this Keeling? Why did they start? So it, uh, it's a measurement of how much carbon dioxide there is in the atmosphere. Why did they start measuring carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in 1958? And that was my sort of introduction to thinking about the history of climate science and wanting to dig into it and wanting to know more. And so I wanted to, to pull out those stories of the people behind the graphs, uh, how we came to create global warming, but also how we came to discover it in the first place. And that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to take one number... Um, and I'm just going to tease out a few of the stories of some of the people uh, behind that number. The number Alice is displaying in the theatre right now is 1.02 degrees Celsius. It's an, it what might seem like quite a small number. It actually reflects something very large. It's how much global warming we're currently living with. Now, climate scientists work this out by taking the average temperature for the whole of the year, for the whole of the world, and comparing it to what they call a pre-industrial baseline, which was what the average temperature was in the, the, end, the second half of the 19th century. Now, this pre-industrial baseline is, some, is a matter of some scientific debate, not least because we now know that in the mid-19th century, human actions like clearing forests and burning coal were already warming the Earth. So it's not as if 1850 is some kind of clean state before global warming happened. But it's, it's what we work from. And so when you see numbers like this, and people say we've got a little over a degree Celsius global warming, or they might, if they're trying to frighten you, be talking about we might have three degrees global warming, or there's a lot of policy debates get wrapped up in discussions of whether we can keep to 1.5. When they're talking about those numbers, they're talking about in comparison to 
the 1850s. Um, now, is, and we now know for, well, this is the one from last year, the, at the beginning of 2021, the scientists totted up all of the temperatures in all of the world for all of the year for 2020, and they compared it to what it was at the end of the 19th century, and they said the difference was 1.02 degrees Celsius. Now, as Spencer Weert says in his book, The Discovery of Global Warming, which um, I brought to wave at you today because it's probably what started getting me really into this issue. When I started questioning that Keeling graph and going, who's Keeling? What was he doing in 1958? It was this book I found, and it's what really kind of pulled me into this whole ludicrous project. Um, as he says in this book, statements like last year was uh, the warmest on record, which this one was. It ties with 2016. Uh, when they say statements like that, it reflects, um, you know, it's not just one statement about one year, but it reflects a huge, massive, multi-generational, interdisciplinary, international effort. Or to put it another way, there are people behind those numbers, there are people who make those numbers, who find those numbers, and those people are relying on networks, not just of people who are alive at the same time as them, but people who go back generations. Uh, it is really an incredible story behind our ability to be able to say, we have warmed the earth by... 1.02 degrees Celsius. It's a, it's a saddening story. It's a terrifying story. There's a large part of my book which goes into how we did it and sort of thinking about how we, how we did that. Um, but it, it also does reflect a huge amount of human knowledge, those stories. Um, and I think the re what I'm going to focus on today is the stories of the climate scientists, which I think is the more hopeful side of it, is the more cheering side of it. The book itself also talks about how we, how we got to this level of warming, you know, some of the activities that we did to keep with that warming, and how even after we knew that we were doing this warming, we still kept warming. Uh, but what I'm going to focus on today is just uh, the untangling of this awareness that, uh, that we were doing it. And it really made, researching this book, made me really reflect on the fact that what modern climate scientists can do is incredible. What they can pull out of what is, for most of us, literally thin air, the knowledge they can, they can take from that is outstanding. And that is, you know, it's based on centuries of other people's research. It's, research, it's based on people all over the world today, but also in the 1950s, in the 1970s, in the 1910s, in the 1880s, some of whom we're going to, to meet today. And, you know, we, we benefit today from that knowledge and we should feel some kind of strength, I think, in the fact that we have that knowledge. Because even with climate change we've had the last few weeks, you know, it's, I think many of us have really felt the impact of climate change, even if we've been lucky enough to be in a country like Britain where we're not physically feeling the impacts of it that much. We've seen it on the news, we're feeling it emotionally, if not, I mean, many people around the world are definitely feeling it very, very physically. You still need science to know it's global warming, to know it's climate change, to know it's not just a bit of weird weather. And we are armed with that knowledge, we have that knowledge. Our ancestors have left us that legacy of that knowledge. Because all too easily, we could just be sitting here thinking, weather's a bit weird, again, and yet we're not. Um, so to dig into this number... I'm going to start not with the number itself, but with the C. The C there is Celsius. Uh, it's a scale first put forward uh, by a Swedish astronomer called Anders Celsius in 1742. And as most of you know, it runs from 0 degrees, uh, which is the freezing point of water, to 100 degrees, which is the boiling point of water. Um, Celsius himself actually had it the other way around. It just got swapped somewhere along the way. I'm not quite sure when or why, or why he did it like that. And it's helpful, it's useful for us humans. I think it's quite understandable why humans have kind of 
sort of kind of often use this scale um, because we often like to play with water. And most of us have 10 fingers, and I don't know about you, but I quite like to count on my fingers. Um, but and these numbers that come, when, especially when they're neat, you know, not like one like this that's got a 0.2 at the end of it, but, you know, the really neat ones like 1 or 1.5 or 2 or 5 or 6, they seem significant to us. But those are just really just to do with a human understanding of the world, you know, one that is based on a world full of, of animals with ten fingers. You know, nature, the larger structures of nature that we sit within have different games to play and different ways of looking at the world. And when we first were building scales like this in, in 1742, actually quite a lot was up for grabs. Uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed researching well, coming back to, um, I used to study history of science when I was an undergraduate, and one of the things I really enjoyed coming back to while I was researching this book um, is uh, this book by uh, one of my old lecturers called Hasok Chang, who's a professor um, <clears throat> now at Cambridge. And he wrote this wonderful book called Inventing Temperature. And it's all about these people in mainly the kind of 17th, 18th centuries, thinking about how they build these things which now seem really intuitive to us today, which is a temperature scale or a thermometer. And it's full of all these descriptions of, of scientists like pouring over boiling vats of water and working out what exactly is a boiling point. Like, now we're like, oh, well, it's boiling at 100 degrees because I've got a thermometer in it. But if you've not got a thermometer in the first place, how do you know that it's 100 degrees? Um, and they, you know, they had all these arguments about what exactly constitutes freezing or boiling. And he, argue, he points out that actually quite a lot of um, uh, the idea of, of temperature scales was... Were, there were lots of different options that people could choose from. So there's, he gives the example of Edmund Halley, who, of um, the comet fame, who recommended to the Royal Society a scale that started with the freezing point of aniseed oil at one end and the boiling point of alcohol at another. Um, other options for how you'd sort of weight your scale included a candle flame or snow, when wax congealed or butter melted. The centre of the Great Pyramids uh, was sometimes given as, a, as an idea of being something very cold that you could base your, your scale on. Or this I find really baffling, the, uh, the hottest water that a hand could manage to be held in without shaking, which surely, like, surely like, it's just too dependent on really subjective levels of endurance and really pointlessly painful for anyone who just wants to make a thermometer. Um, the other thing that he notes um, is that the wine cellars of the Paris Observatory were particularly popular among scientists and feature in at least three different scales that we put forward that he found. Um, but, you know, we, we decided against all of those and we went with Fahrenheit uh, in some parts of the world and were certainly used for, uh, for temperature calculations and weather calculations up until the, in the English-speaking world until the 60s, which kind of relies also on sticking a thermometer bulb under your armpit. Um, or more commonly, we go with uh, water and Celsius and 10 fingers. But being able to tell the difference between a warm day and a hot one because you've agreed a scale and then actually doing that is a slightly different matter. So today I think we take weather data almost for granted. We're told it's the hottest day on record or the wettest or the coldest or whatever. And we think, oh, well, there's all these records. They're very long-standing. They've sat in cupboards somewhere at institutes like the Royal Institution for a long time and we rely on it. Um, but, you know, all of that data had to be built. It had to be collected. And it actually happened kind of later than you might have thought, because I mean, particularly in the UK, British people are, are known for being obsessed with the weather. And they, like in, in London, there were a lot of some of the kind of first establishment areas of, of science. There were people like the Royal, the Royal Society was set up in 1666, and they were like, we're going to do science in a particular way, and we're going to measure things, and we're going to collect lots and lots of data on stuff. And you would have thought that all these people who were so obsessed with collecting data and obsessed with the weather 
would collect data on the weather. But they didn't really. There was a project in Tuscany that did uh, some standardized weather collections and sort of got some data together and then kind of fizzled out. And there's another one that was in the UK by Robert Hook from the Royal Society. He wanted to create a history of the weather and he got his friend to collect information on things like temperature or wind scale. But even Hook found it a bit boring. He was just collecting data and then kind of filing it away. It needed a bit more poetry, a bit more theory, a bit of uh, you know, an idea to put it together or a bit of adventure or a sense of mission. And so it started to, it wasn't until, uh, you know, kind of the beginning of the, of the 19th century, really, that it started to get some of that poetry. The guy called Luke Howard, um, who built some, built, started to name the clouds. And this is a really beautiful book about this guy, Luke Howard, um, which I highly recommend about, about his life. Now, Nick Howard is a Quaker from London, and he's had a career as a pharmacist. He worked for a company that was famous for making uh, blackcurrant and glycerin pastilles, if you had a sore throat. And he loved science, and he was a member of an informal science club. So this is the beginning of the 19th century. It's the same time as the Royal Institution is being founded, and people are flocking to Mayfair and watching incredible shows at the Royal Institution. But there's also lots of much more informal clubs that are sometimes a little bit messier and a bit noisier um, that are happening in the kind of fringes of London as well. And him and his mates had this group uh, that got together Every, now, every, every few weeks, and they do things like take laughing gas and set fire to things, which, to be fair on them, most of the other people in the science clubs, including at the Royal Institution, were doing all of the time. Uh, it was definitely what the people who love science in that period did. Uh, and the deal was that if you were a member of this club, then you, take, you had to prepare a paper. It would, you, it would be your turn. It would go in turns. You know, every, every meeting, it would be somebody else's turn to give a paper. And Luke Howard loved going and hearing other people's papers, but he was dreading the day that was going to come when he had to give a paper. And it came round um, at the end of 1802 in December, and he was terrified. Everyone else was cleverer than him or posher than him. They were all posher than him. And he was just thinking, what am I going to say to all these posh boys who like taking laughing gas? Um, but he loved clouds. Ever since he was a kid, he just loved staring at the sky and looking at clouds. And he thought, what if we named them? Now, Robert Hooke, when he'd done his project well over 100 years before, had kind of talked about the faces in the sky, but he hadn't really done anything more than that. He'd asked people to maybe write down what the sky looked like. But no one before Luke Howard had really thought about naming clouds and reflecting on how they're different shapes and did different things in the sky. And that's what Luke Howard did. He came up uh, to his, his friends to give his paper, and he had a, a pile of, of pictures, paintings that he'd drawn of them and notes about them, and he named them. Um, there was cirrus, Latin for fibre or hair, stratus, Latin for lair, nimbus, which is slightly less poetically Latin for cloud. Um, and he was worried that his friends would think it was silly, it wasn't scientific enough, but they loved it. He spoke for an hour about all the different clouds and they all just thought it was beautiful. Uh, afterwards, someone came up to him and said, I must publish this in my magazine, the philosophy magazine, and the philosopher's magazine, and he, he published it uh, as an essay and then as a best-selling pamphlet. Um, and people, you can actually trace the work that, that Luke Howard did on clouds through um, not just science and the growing meteorological science of the time, but writings of Shelley and Coleridge and Goethe and paintings by Turner and Constable. And I, yeah, I really do recommend this book. It's so lovely about this man who was quite timid and yet really kind of boosted a whole load of weather science with his just staring at clouds. Um, he used some of his cloud fame to try and bring together people interested in weather science and kind of build boost a meteorological science it could be a thing like chemistry was or something um, and in 
1823, an issue of the philosophical magazine advertised a meeting of the Meteorological Society of London that was held in the London coffee shop on Ludgate Hill, which is now a, a pub called Ye Olde London, just by St Paul's. If you ever want to go and have a pint with a friend and talk about the weather, you can pretend to be Luke Howard doing that. And they, they would meet over the next few months and they correspond with other scientists who were interested in meteorology in, in France and other European countries. But after the initial excitement, it kind of fell apart. Luke Howard moved to Yorkshire and another one of the co-founders, George Birkbeck, went off to found Birkbeck College. Um, uh, there, there were other attempts for doing weather work at the time. Um, I'd also recommend this book by Peter Moore on people who are kind of building weather, early weather science. It's really beautifully written as well, this book. He, he manages to play with kind of weather imagery with his words, which I didn't realise he'd done it until I, like, the second time I read it, but it's so, so beautiful. I wish I could write like that. Um, and he talks about not just Howard, but lots of the other people working on, on weather science and, and the ways in which this sort of attempt to have a weather society kind of started and broke away and started again. And so a few years after it had kind of fallen apart the original Howard one had fallen apart. It was revived again, and a young John Ruskin became an enthusiastic member. And in, in 1839, he ambitiously laid out the, the society's aims, declaring that it had been formed, this is the line from it, not for a city, not just for London, not for a kingdom, not just for the UK, but for the world. It wishes to be the central point, the motivating power of a vast machine. And it feels that unless it can be this, it must be powerless. It must if it cannot do all, it can do nothing. And this reflected a real ambition in the science. I think, I mean, it sounds like just a young man being very arrogant, but it also is, I think, more fairly to him, it, it reflects a sense that they didn't just want to collect what the weather was like in London. You know, it needed, if you were interested in the weather, you needed to be interested in the whole system. You needed to be interested not just in the weather of the UK, but the whole of Europe, the whole of the world. And it was a kind of, I think, really ambitious thinking about, well, if we want to do meteorological science properly, we need to think about the whole world. But uh, this kind of large-scale meteorological power was a long way off. Um, and so after collecting lots of bits of data about weather, rain in different parts of the UK, they kind of fell apart again. Now, weather science would gather some mission and, importantly, money with the military and trade getting in, uh, involved. In 1831, a large hur hurricane hit Barbados. And the British were, by this point, in Barbados and discovered the hurricanes were a thing. This is something they didn't need to worry about too much in Britain, but as they were extending their empire, they were experiencing all sorts of different types of weather. And a British army officer called William Reed had been given the task of rebuilding the offices, the government offices in Barbados after the hurricane. And he was kind of, what is this incredible force that can do this to, to uh, this island? He wanted to learn more about it. And he started reading some American research on storms and also going into ships' logs in the area, which there were you know, lots of ships going around the Caribbean. There were lots of logs. He could look at all the information about the weather that was just collected in that. You know, projects like Hooks, who had tried to get people to research the weather, had fallen apart. But people were still collecting lots of data about the weather just in ships' logs. Uh, and people like William Reed realised that this was quite a rich data set, and he started looking through it. And he built, he wrote some scientific papers and also a practical guide about storms for mariners. The colonial office loved it, gave him the job as governor of Bermuda so he could study storms more. Um, and started to make some diplomatic uh, approaches to the American government, saying maybe we could just share some of the data that we've got in our ship. You know, I'll show you my ship's logs if you show me yours. And this idea ended up on the desk of someone called uh, Matthew Montine Murray, who ran this thing, which is kind of like a Victorian NASA. It was the US Naval Observatory and Hydrological Office, which still exists, but this is its... Um, 
old, old original buildings in DC. He'd been a former sailor and he'd ended up, he'd had an injury, so he couldn't go to sea anymore, and he got a job just looking at the ship's logs in DC. And that included not just military logs, uh, but also whaler ships. So it had all sorts of interesting information about the seas. And he'd used that to build a kind of practical meteorology, which had wind charts, which helped American sailors travel around the States. This is before they built railways that could cut across, that could move around the different coasts of, of the US, uh, and they helped them go much, much faster. And Murray quite liked this idea of sharing data, but he thought, let's go bigger, you know, let's not just have a British-American alliance, let's get all the other European powers involved as well. And he set up a conference in Brussels in summer 1853, bringing them together to say, let's share at least some of our data on the weather. Now, these powers were much more used to competing and going to war with each other than um, cooperating on science, but they kind of appreciated that Murray had managed to, you know, his wind charts had helped ships uh, go from different coasts of, of America, cut the time by a third. And they were very aware that time is money and they wanted those efficiency gains themselves. So they thought, all right, if we could get in on this game, maybe it would be worth it. So they agreed that they'd collect data on the weather and they'd, they'd share it with each other. And then added to that, um, alongside running alongside these kind of military efforts, you also get new experiments of small-scale weather, weather projects that were collecting data together, a bit more like the sort of thing that Hooker tried to do back in the 17th century. Um, and these were really uh, helped by the invention of the electric telegraph. So around the same time that Murray was setting this thing up in DC, Samuel Morse was also demonstrating his new electric telegraph. And lots of people realised that this would be a great way of sharing scientific data, particularly for something like the weather. Uh, and a guy called uh, Joseph Henry was setting up the Smithsonian Institution, again, not far from here, in the middle of DC. And people had said to him, why don't you collect together loads of, of weather data, have loads of people, sort of weather watchers across the US, and they can send in through this electric telegraph the data that they've collected, and then on the day you'll have weather from the whole of the US, and you can collect it together. And because he was working in a museum, he could, um, he could share that to audiences, uh, and also politicians, because his, his museum was just down the way from the Capitol building. And he had this great idea of putting the data on the map, on a, on a map. And people would visit the Smithsonian Museum and they'd be able to see the weather. It would just be the weather from the day before. It's not like we are used to now forecasting. It wouldn't be telling them what the weather was going to be like. It was what the weather had been like. But people were fascinated. You, see, you know, if you lived in, in New York or DC, you had no idea about what the weather would be like down in Florida or somewhere, unless you know, it took several days for, for a letter from your cousin or something to, to come up. But the, this new technology of the electric telegraph could send them this information very quickly. So they had... Um, uh, a whole load of, of they had several hundred observers across the US and they would record weather data in specially printed forms that the Smithsonian had made so that it would be as, um, as kind of standardised as possible. And then they telegraph every day their, their data in. And an 1857 report on the project says that they had 15 clerical staff, mainly women, working through this project and they would be getting um, inundated with half a million separate observations uh, which they then have to run lots of complicated maths on. And the clerks would, would go to this big map in the centre of the Smithsonian and they put a little grey patch if it was rainy and a little black one if there was a storm. I guess maybe there was a little yellow one if it was sunny. Over in uh, London, this guy called James Glacier was doing something similar. This is him in a picture of him in a balloon, which I will talk about a bit more in a minute. But um, when he wasn't going up in balloons, uh, he was, um, worked in meteorology at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, and he established a similar network out of there, again, with information being sent in through telegraph. Um, the Royal Observatory sent special equipment that was standardised and calibrated so it would be as standardised as possible, all the information would be collected wherever it was across the country. Um, and it was normally given to people who had a, a relationship in the local area that 
the Royal Observatory could trust. So it would be a vicar or a doctor. Um, and vicar or doctor in some village somewhere would collect information about the weather and they telegraph it in by noon to the Royal Observatory. And then Glacier, instead of putting it on a map, he, uh, in a museum, he printed it in a newspaper because he was one of the first kind of weathermen. He'd been covering, uh, London Illustrated News had been going to him for kind of comments on storms or other weather phenomena for a bit. Uh, and when the editor there was going to set up a new newspaper that Charles Dickens was, built, was, was producing, the Daily News, he said, oh, could you have a regular column? And Glacier said, I can do better than that. I'm going to give you a weather report. And again, this was not a weather forecast. It wasn't anything actually very useful. It was just telling you about what the weather was like. But people loved it. Um, and in the... Uh, Great exhibition in 1851. Glacier was there, um, sponsored by one of the telegraph companies, giving a real-time weather map of, of information as it came in, and people could buy a copy for a, for a small amount of money, and they were all very excited with this news of what the weather had been like. Um, now, these are a long way from today's forecast, but they were you know, kind of a step to it. And Glacius also got into scientific ballooning with a series of flights in the 1860s with balloony, ballooner, uh, balloonist Henry Tracy Coxwell. So I think Glacius, the one with all the equipment there, with the sideburns, and a guy with slightly more of a beard would be, um, would be Coxwell. Now, they had all sorts of adventures, uh, often from Birmingham, because they knew a sympathetic gasworks uh, owner who would let them fill their balloon from the gasworks, uh, but also was in the centre of England, so allowed them to travel all over the place. And they go up to the skies and they do um, weather experiments, meteorological experiments, to you know go up into those clouds that people have been looking up and wondering about. They went up to them to actually study them. There's a really lovely fictionalised uh, account of this. Uh, it's a film that came out a couple of years ago called The Aeronauts. It is heavily fictionalised to the extent that um, Henry Croxwell is a woman. Felicity Jones, and um, Glacier is several decades younger than he was in real life, um, so it does float somewhat from the truth, but it really, it tells a story of uh, something that did happen, which was when they went up in a balloon and nearly died, and it's a, a really exciting uh, movie, but also, I think, really, despite the fact that it's heavily fictionalised, does tell something about the truth of what science was like at the time. Now, ballooning had been used to study meteorology a bit, but it had been largely dismissed as like a fairground thing, like something that not serious people, people did. And one of the favorite, my favourite characters in my book that I had kind of stumbled across when I was researching it is a guy called James Sadler. Uh, he'd started life as a pastry chef in Oxford. Um, but he was really into science, and he built a small laboratory at the back of his shop. And he, he'd read about ballooning in, in France. This is at the kind of end of the 18th century, several decades before Glacier. Um, and he'd read about ballooning in France. I thought, I could do this here. And he sort of crowdfunded a ballooning project. He got the students just to give him a little bit of money each, which they did because of the idea of just being able to watch a balloon. And he used that to crowdfund his balloon work. And he was the first English person uh, to go up in a balloon in England. He was the second person in England to, to make a ballooning ascent. Uh, the first one was uh, Italian, I think. Um, and he did it not because he wanted, you know, he could make, he could get the money to do this by putting on a show for the students, but he was doing it not to put on a show. He did it because he was really geekily into the science. And he thought that by going up into the skies, we could learn more about magnetism, um, about electricity and chemistry, and he also said it might throw light on the obscure science of meteorology. Um, he was really keen that it would help us learn more about, about the skies and about potentially the weather. And we know that Luke Howard, the cloud guy, went and saw one of Sadler balloon, Sadler's balloon ascents in the Mermaid Tavern in Hackney in August 1811. And he must have wondered what it would be like um, to be able to go up into those clouds that he'd named 
Uh, but there's no evidence that he did it. And generally, it was just people like Sadler who kind of did the odd experiment when they could. Um, the other thing that's really I love about Sadler is that he impressed the chemistry professor at Oxford um, and a guy called Thomas Beddoes, who's also in my book, um, but you have to read the book to learn more about him. But Thomas Beddoes got Sadler into improve the laboratories at Oxford because the chemistry laboratories in Oxford at the time were in a terrible condition um, and just weren't very good. And so they could get the local baker in to improve them. So if you know anyone who's got a degree in chemistry from Oxford and they're snobby about that, then you can tell them that fact. Yeah, but after Sadler, it kind of just sort of got left behind and no one really took it seriously. They saw it as sort of funfair stuff. Um, but, um, but Glacier went back up and started to do experiments and that was one of the things that was important for his contribution to meteorology. Um, there's a really good book about the history of ballooning called uh, Falling Upwards, which kind of inspired that film and I really, really recommend. And one of the... It's got lots of lovely stories in it. Nobody ever finishes non-fiction books. Obviously, you're all going to finish my non-fiction book because it's great. But no one ever finishes non-fiction books. But you should finish this one because the last chapter is gripping. Um, it's got so many great stories. <clears throat> but one of the, the points that he makes, one of the arguments he makes, as well as all these stories, is that he says that, yeah, scientists were really snobby about ballooning for many decades and didn't do much work on it. But it did have an influence because people like Sadler would go up into the sky and that gave a whole new vision of kind of looking at the Earth. This vision of the Earth from above that I think now we're really used to. You know, we can get satellite imagery on our phones or, or in TV or, you know, just looking out of the window if we take a flight, although obviously we're all environmentalists and we don't do that. Uh, but, we'd, you know, these things are kind of normal and almost mundane for us. But for people like Sadler at the beginning of the 19th century or for people like Glacier in the, middle, you know, in the 1860s, that would have been really weird to be able to see the Earth from above like that. And one of the points that Holmes makes is that it's, he said that um, it really influenced the Ordnance Survey uh, process, the mapping of England, one of the first sort of big mapping projects like that, big sort of state mapping projects. And kind of also beyond that gave a, a, a different way of looking at the Earth for, for people thinking about the natural sciences, for people who are thinking about the Earth, particularly because of the period that was happening in. It's a period of a lot of industrialisation. The time between Sadler and Glacier was actually a big period of kind of ripping up bits of the English countryside to build railways. And so people going up in the balloons would have seen that. And for the first time, they would have, uh, Holmes argues, they would have really seen this sort of man's impact on nature. And he thinks that it was similar to the Earthrise image that was taken by astronauts in the early Apollo uh, missions when they went to the moon, uh, which inspired a whole wave of environmentalism in the late 20th century and this sort of different vision of, of our home planet, which I think is, I don't know if it's true or not, but I think it's a, an interesting argument. On the more official end of things, rather than just going from balloons, uh, not long after making that agreement with Maury to share some data, the British, French military were hit. The British and French military were hit really bad by a storm in Balaclava. Now, trivia fans might know that that gave us the Balaclava uh, helmet, um, but or the face mask. But more pertinent to our story, it was really seen that if only we knew more about the weather. All these clever weather people who were making maps at the Smithsonian and stuff like that. If only we, they could use this data to help us predict storms. Maybe, maybe we could have saved lives. And there was a sense that the, the British and French governments should be doing a bit more than just collecting a bit of data. So they set up... The, in Britain, uh, the Board of Trade decided it was going to set up a meteorological department, which is today's meteorological office. So whenever you see anything from the Met Office, it was set up uh, because of this big storm in Balaclava. And the man who was given the job of running it was a guy called Captain Robert Fitzroy. Now, he's most famous for the voyage of the Beagle with Charles Darwin which had been a scientific survey of the shores of Chile and Peru and the islands of the Pacific um, for the British military. So much science at the time being done for colonial reasons. Uh, and when they got back, 
Uh, Darwin wrote his book, and that had given uh, both Darwin and Fitzroy quite a lot of fame. And off the back of, of this fame, Fitzroy had gone into politics, which hadn't gone well. He'd ended up really poor. The, he actually had to pay for a lot of this voyage. This is the way in which science was done back then. It was like, rich men, do your science. Oh, you're a rich man, do some science. Oh, you've got loads of money, we don't need to pay you. Uh, and, but it had been a very expensive voyage. And the idea was the government was going to pay him back, but no one paid him back. Um, and I think maybe he was just too embarrassed to ask or something like that. But he had quite a, a dent in his first personal finances um, uh, and was a bit broke having tried politics and failed in it. And he saw this job come up running the meteorological department for the Board of Trade and thought, this is great. It's science and politics. I'm a man of the Navy. I know about storms. Perfect for me. And he set up this new system. He'd give from his offices in Westminster, he'd send out equipment to lots of ship's captains. And they'd also get wind charts from Maury that would help them... Uh, you, you know, help them uh, at sea a lot more. And that was in exchange for them collecting data. And there were special prizes for the people who kept the best records, like telescopes and things. And they'd use this to amass lots and lots of data. Um, and then they'd sit and basically, but at first, they just collected this data and didn't do much with it. It kind of piled up more and more and more and more. Um, and then in October 1859, a devastating storm hit a big part of the coast of the UK, of England and Scotland. Uh, and it, was, it made the press, partly because it, it hit over 300 ships, but also one of the ships that had been sunk because of the storm had been taking people back from Australia, from the Australian gold rush. And there were these really kind of emotive stories in the press of these men that were coming back from Australia and they were swimming because their ship had been wrecked and they were weighed down by the gold. And that made a big press splash and there was a, another feeling that lives would have been saved if only these clever weatherman men were doing more than just collecting data, if they could issue warnings about storms. Uh, and Fitzroy himself, you know, he was, uh, for, you know, he'd been a captain, he'd been caught in storms himself. Um, he, he, you know, he knew how devastating they could be. He wanted to help people. He wanted to create a warning system. So he set up a series of storm warnings. Um, the first one they issued was in February 1861. Um, within weeks, they'd got eight more. And soon, uh, by the end of that, that summer, they were providing daily forecasts for several different regions of the British Isles. Um, they'd invented forecasting, basically. You know, previously, everyone, when they collected weather data together, it had all been like just history. It would have been what the weather had been like before. This is them saying what the weather's going to be like. You know, we think of that as, that's just so mundane for us. We just, you know, we take it for granted that we can just check our phone and see what the weather's probably going to be like later in the day and that it's incredibly accurate. Like back then, this was entirely new. And honestly, for Fitzroy, it was a little bit shaky. So his storm warnings were only accurate only a little over half of the time. Um, and they were controversial. So, um, sail, uh, ship owners hated the fact that there'd be a storm warning and they'd be told that they'd have to keep their ships in port because it meant that they couldn't uh, trade. It would cost them money. It was maybe similar to some of the kind of uh, health warnings over COVID we've, arguments we've had about that and it started to get raised in the press and parliament. But also scientists were quite sceptical that it was really a good idea. It felt... I mean, people appreciate... Scientists appreciated that forecasting seemed like a good idea, that the public would want it. But at the same time they kind of felt it wasn't really their job or that they didn't really have enough knowledge yet to be able to do it. You know, um, it, it felt a bit like government-funded fortune-telling, you know. So what, the public wanted to know what the weather was going to be like, but, you know, they, they wanted to know when they'd meet their true love or if their father was going to get better from his illness. It wasn't science's job to tell people what was going to happen in the future. And it didn't, it didn't help that there was quite a market at the time for weather forecasts of a sort that ran alongside astrology in popular press. 
Um, and so it, people looked at Fitzroy, and you know he wasn't a professional scientist, although he'd done a lot of scientific work. And you know people like Glaser kind of felt like he should have got the job working, running this meteorology department. So he was sort of quite critical of of, of Fitzroy. But there were several other scientists who didn't necessarily have the same kind of skin in the game that also just a bit sceptical of it. There's a great book about all of this um, by Catherine Anderson. It's an academic book, but it's really, really easy to read. And it's so interesting about these controversies uh, at the time, the kind of the birth of forecasting between these characters who were astrologers, who also, one of the things that's so fascinating about these astrologers who were also issuing weather forecasts is they thought they were scientific. They desperately wanted to be scientific. Um, Catherine Anderson talks about this. It's a really interesting guy who, he, he's called himself Zadkiel. It wasn't his what he was born, but he called himself Zadkiel. He'd been in, uh, in the Navy, and then he'd left and joined an occult organisation and got really into astrology and started printing astrology and weather forecasts. And he seemed to get really into what he called something called astrometeorology. It seemed to be as if he was interested in weather research because he thought, well, astronomy is about the, astrology is about the sky and uh, weather forecasting is about the sky, and we can combine them together. And he had kind of scientific theories for doing it. He kind of had this thing called astrometeorology that kind of linked astrology and meteorology and electricity and magnetism and mesmerism and he put them all together and he it, for him it was coherent and he he kind of really felt that it was scientific and he would fight against people like Fitzroy and about and Glacier and all the other scientists and say I'm a scientist and he'd have he'd get really angry at them all and one of the things I think is really interesting about the study that she pulls out is it's an example of scientists kind of feeling their way and making new knowledge in public and having fights with non-scientists about what is scientific and in many ways I think it's sort of well, when I was reading it, I kept, being, I kept being reminded of much more modern fights between climate scientists and climate sceptics. Fitzroy is very different from a modern climate scientist. He was uh, quite insecure in his position anyway. And he wasn't, you know, one of the problems with his forecasting was that it wasn't really based in as much rigorous science as it needed to be. Um, but he's having these kind of arguments with, with, you know, people who are kind of outside science, like Zach Keel, and people who are very authoritative scientists, like uh, Glacier, or other people like um, Francis Galton, who is Darwin's uh, cousin, who had lots of fights with him. Anyway, Fitzroy started to feel much more, more and more under attack because he was getting all this criticism. The Board of Trade started listening to this criticism and cut his budget, and he started to feel starved of data. He'd suffered from a lot of depression um, over the years. He was still heavily in debt from having never been paid back from the Beagle. He, started, he took a bit of time off work and moved to, to Norwood, and he started to feel a little bit better. And then he went back to work and started to feel worse again. He started to obsess about the direction that Charles Darwin had taken after the voyage of the Beagle and his writing on evolution. He started to obsess about American politics, and then after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, he got really, really worried about that. And he came back one night after a meeting with an American colleague, really, really agitated. And the next day he got up and he slit his throat. Um, and I went to visit where he used to live a couple of weeks ago. And I found the plaque. This is in, uh, in Norwood, not far from Crystal Palace. You can still see it. There's a plaque saying this is where he lived. It doesn't say this is where he killed himself. I went and saw his grave, um, which is just down the road from there. And I was told by my friend, uh, he's sitting in the audience, so I can check with him how accurate it is later, <laughs> that um, he's buried on the edge of the consecrated ground. If you go to the cemetery, it's just on the edge of the graveyard because he killed himself. He wasn't allowed to be buried. I don't know if that's true or it's just something that people say in West Norwood um, or South Norwood. But it's, uh, that's where he lived and that's where he died. Uh, and that was the end, at least for Fitzroy's forecasting, because the press seized on this. You know, uh, at the time, suicide was taken. You know, it's seen as a sort of failure. And he was 
that his debts came out in public after that, and this really contributed to this idea of him as a kind of gentleman bluff, you know, just kind of making his way, thinking that he knew about science, but didn't really, well-meaning maybe with this idea of, of forecast, but didn't know what he was doing. It was an official uh, report done by Francis Galton, who had always had it in for, for Fitzroy, who, who really emphasised that it was all just a mess and not scientific at all, and all the forecasts were, closed, were stopped. However, in America, the programme that had been set up by Joseph Henry in the Smithsonian had been transferred over to the American army, and they had set up a much more efficient uh, and large-scale project to do something similar. And within a few years, they were managing to claim storm warnings that were almost 90% accurate. Um, so, you know, almost twice as well as, as good as Fitzroy's. And by 1879, a few decades later, the Royal Society felt comfortable enough with saying, OK, we can have the forecasting programme can start again. Um, and they'd done the research. They sort of caught up with Fitzroy's vision. He'd started forecasting much earlier than science was ready for, um, but it was here today. And I think that, you know, he's a problematic character in the history of science, um, but we maybe owe him quite a bit. And it's, I definitely think he had an unfortunate end. As the 19th century crept on, there were many more attempts to form different meteorological groups. Uh, this thing that John Ruskin had tried and Howard had tried that had fallen apart started again and there was a bit more solid. And by the 1880s, a meteorological society was now able to call itself the Royal Meteorological Society. Queen Victoria said they could use the Royal and they were established and they're still going today. There was more international collaboration. These different networks like the Board of Trade that had been set up to collect stuff after Maury's conference uh, the people who ran them started to itch for more than just the data in themselves and wanted to share more and more, and they started to build an international meteorological congress so international scientists could work together. And that's the origin of um, the World Meteorological Organization that we have today. Uh, and in the 1880s, they started planning to have ways in which they could work together as different institutes from all over the world to work together on studying the poles, uh, the Arctic and the Antarctic. And they had an international polar year in 1882. And there was another one in the 1930s, and then a kind of another project on that in the 1950s. The era of international meteorological cooperation had started. This vision that Ruskin had had for, kind of, for the whole of the world was starting to take up, off. Uh, to fast forward to a 1930s and a guy called Guy Callender. Um, a guy Callender was sitting in his home in the 1930s in Worthing, poring over a load of weather data, which by this point had been collected and shared and archived very, very neatly uh, for many, many decades. Now, his day job was studying steam for the British electrical industry, or to put it another way, he basically worked in the fossil fuel industry. Um, now, there's a great book on, his, which, on him, which you can actually find on the internet, uh, called The Calendar Effect. Uh, by James Roger Fleming, who's a great expert on the history of climate science. And it's a really lovely book, and it includes loads of extracts of his um, letters and his work. Um, and so you don't just get the description of the story that Fleming writes for you, but you can also kind of feel like you're being a proper historian, and, and look, you know, just any reader can look at it and have a look at those archives that Fleming's found, uh, which is so lovely to be able to read in a book like that. And as Fleming points out, it was Guy's father, Hugh, that was much more the famous scientist in their own time. So Guy Callan just worked for the steam industry. In fact, it was a job that he kind of basically got off the back of his dad's much more prodigious work in this. His dad was a professor at, uh, at Imperial College. And they, he'd grown up, uh, Hugh had been born when his dad was working in McGill University in Canada, and then he'd moved as a child to Canada. 
from Canada to, to Ealing, uh, in this big house that his parents had, which I went to recently to see if it was still there so I could campaign to have a plaque on it, but sadly it's been knocked down, so I can't. Uh, but they had this big uh, house near what is, was later the Ealing Studios, where they made all the movies. It had a garage, because his dad was really into cars, and it had a tennis court, because they were all very into tennis, and it had a, a greenhouse that they turned into a lab, and the children were encouraged to play in the lab at home, uh, sometimes with disastrous consequences. In fact, his older brother Leslie actually blew up the uh, greenhouse trying to make TNT at one point. But not before Leslie had stuck a pin in Guy's eye and partially blinded him in a science experiment. Now, this actually probably saved Guy's life because he was born at the end of the 19th century, and so a man who would have been in his late teens in 1914 probably would have ended up, in Britain, would have probably ended up fighting in World War I, and you know, many of his generation died uh, in fields in, in France or Belgium. Uh, but he was unable to do active service during World War I, so he went to work in his dad's lab. He had a job x-raying aircraft, which must have been such a sci-fi fun thing to do if you were in your late teens in 1915. And he, he kind of did more work with his dad and got into, um, got into working in the fossil fuel industry um, and picked up various hobbies like tennis and gardening, and pouring over weather data. And so it's the 1930s, in his late 30s, uh, early 40s, he, he started uh, looking over how temperature data, of how, you know, how hot it had been around the world, what were these average temperatures for the whole of the Earth, for the whole of a year, year by year by year by year. And he worked out that in the four decades that he'd roughly been alive at that point, that there were really strong records for, the Earth had warmed by about a third of a degree Celsius, or to put it another way, we're about a third of the way to what that we are now, that number I started with, that 1.02 degrees Celsius. In 1938, when Guy Callender was tutting all these numbers up, just as a hobby, in his garden shed uh, in Worthing, um, we were about a third of the way there. And he also looked at how much carbon dioxide there was in the atmosphere and, and argued that we had got to the point where we were emitting so much carbon dioxide that natural carbon sinks, natural processes for drawing down the carbon, like trees or oceans, couldn't cope. And so the atmosphere was filling with carbon dioxide and this was warming the earth and that was what's causing that third of a degrees global warming. Now, he actually thought it was kind of probably a good thing, which is maybe no surprise because he worked for the fossil fuel industry. Uh, but I think it was also very much of the time. He thought, right, fossil fuels are good. They give us heat, they give us light, they give us power. And if it got a bit warmer, that would probably be a good thing. People at the time were still kind of worried about global cooling. They were worried that we'd have, you know, they knew that there'd been ice ages. They didn't want to have another one. And he said, oh, you know, if it got a bit warmer, it would maybe put off the return of the deadly glaciers. He thought it was probably as a good thing. But he wrote a paper about it to this Royal Meteorological Society. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about the paper in a second, but I want to wind back a little bit further. Um, so why was he talking about CO2 in the first place? Why did he think that CO2 was going to be warming? And we need to go back to the 1850s again. And a woman called Eunice Newton Foote, who was a scientist, inventor, and women's rights campaigner who lived in New York State. And in 1856, she was the first person to warn that a world that had an atmosphere full of carbon dioxide could get very hot indeed. Now... I have a blank slide here. It says intentionally left blank because we don't have a photograph of Eunice Foote. She was wealthy enough in the part of the world that had photographs at the time that had photo photographers. There is probably a, photo a photograph of her taken. There were probably several photographs of her taken over her lifetime. But no one thought to archive them because at the time, no one thought she was very important. They thought she was just a middle-class woman who did a bit of women's rights activism and was interested in science. So 
There is probably a photo out there, but we don't have it. There's, in fact, there's some researchers in America that are using artificial intelligence to go through the archives to see if they can find her. So it may be that if I give a talk in a year or so's time, I'll have a photograph of Eunice Foote, but at the moment, I don't. And every time I prepare slides for this, people helpfully go, oh, I looked at your slides, and he had a blank one, and I took it out. And I have to go, no, it's so I can try and make a point about how we forget women in history. Anyway, to make a point about how we forget women in history, intentionally left blank, we don't have a picture of Eunice Foote. Now, her experiment uh, on carbon dioxide was relatively simple. Um, she did it at home, like a lot of people did science at the time. She took two cylinders, um, and one she left just full of standard air, and the other one she filled with carbon dioxide, and she put them on her windowsill just to see how the heat would go through it, and what would, the heat from the sun would go through it, what would, do, what would happen to it. And she noticed that the one that was filled with carbon dioxide heated up a lot, and then took quite a long time to cool down. And she wrote this up, along with a couple of other experiments involving using dry or damp air in these cylinders, um, one with slightly less air pressure in it. You know, she was just interested in gases and air and heat going through it. And she put almost in passing at the end of her paper that an atmosphere of this gas of carbon dioxide would give our Earth a high temperature. And she presented this at a conference a few months later um, in New York State, a big conference for the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Um, now, at that point, women were allowed to be members of the AAAS, but it was still seen very much that science was a man's job. And it's really striking, if you look at the reports of that conference, that although Eunice Foote's husband, he also did science in his spare time, he was one of the people who did weather observations for projects like the Smithsonian, um, he presented his paper and he read it himself, like I'm doing now. Uh, but Eunice's Foote, Eunice Foote's paper was read for her. And so sometimes when people look back on this, they think, oh, sexism. Now, we don't know if it was, that was the case. Um, the person who read her paper was none other than Joseph Henry, the person who set up the Smithsonian. And so it could be that, his, that her paper was chosen to be read by him to give it more prominence. And it was reported at the time. It was, um, it was mentioned in uh, a Scientific American uh, write-up about, the, about the, uh, the conference, although under the slightly patronising headline, Scientific Ladies. And it was republished and talked about in a couple of journals as well. But it, does, it was pretty much forgotten after that, and it, nobody really talked about it or noticed it after a little bit of reporting in 1856, until really the last five to ten years, when some archive, archivists and historians picked it up and uh, got excited about it. And now people love to tell the story of Eunice Foote, the woman who warned us all about global warming in 1856 and got forgotten. Um, now, luckily for 19th century science, though, a man came along to say almost exactly the same thing uh, not long after. Uh, ladies, if you've ever been in this instance, you're in a meeting and you, give, you get, make a suggestion and everyone goes, oh, that's really great, and then they forget it. And then a man says exactly the same thing and everyone goes, that's brilliant. Uh, that was what happened to Eunice Foote. Um, this is the man. We do have a picture of him. We have many. Now, he worked here at the Royal Institution. Um, and he, he, um, he worked around the same time and he published a paper, very similar results, sort of similar conclusions, a few years later in 1861. Now, there's no evidence that Tyndall read Foote's work. Some people like to think that he ripped her off. And maybe that's true, but it doesn't look like that. Um, Tyndall expert Roland Jackson, who's a researcher here at the Royal Institution, you know, he's read everything. He knows everything there is to know about Tyndall. And he reckons that it would be very out of character for a Tyndall to have done that. Um, and, so I, and also, there were other scientists in Germany at the time also kind of doing similar work. So I think it's fair to say that he could have made that discovery on his own. And it was slightly different work that he did too. Um, and the foot Tyndall story is, is sometimes described as a woman versus the patriarchy. And although I think that is, there is, a, you know, there are reasons why foot was forgotten, that there's 
coincidences. There's things like the fact that a load of her papers got destroyed in a fire at the Smithsonian. But you know, a lot of that is wrapped up in the fact that people are more likely to forget what women say. Um, but it, you know, we shouldn't forget, still at the same time, that she was quite privileged. Um, she was white and she was rich. Now, Tyndall also had privilege. He was also white and he was a man. But one of the reasons that he was remembered and she was forgotten that he was that he was incredibly well-networked. And he had to build those networks because he didn't come from the kind of family that people like Charles Darwin or Francis Galton had, where you, could, you inherited a huge amount of wealth and also a huge amount of scientific contacts. He didn't have that. He was from a relatively humble background in Ireland, and he had had to make his own way in, uh, in science. Uh, um, Roland Jackson, the guy from the Royal Institution, has written this incredible book about him, uh, which I really recommend. It's full of all sorts of adventures. A huge amount of warmth. You get the impression that Roland Jackson thinks that Tyndall is a bit annoying, but also really loves him. And it's really lovely, really lovely to have that warmth from the historian coming out in his, his book. And he tells you all about his adventures from Ireland, and he works in the Ordnance Survey, which the Ordnance Survey made a lot of, out of quite cheap Irish labour, and, and Tyndall was one of those. And how he, he took that, and he went to Preston, and he saw these big, this huge political movement in the 1840s of people rising, these chartists who were rising up for political rights. He was inspired by, uh, by this uh, political movement in the 1840s and he educated himself and went to uh, evening classes at the Mechanics Institute and then he got a job in a school and he wasn't teaching science but he hung out with the science teacher and he learnt more science. And there's these stories about him uh, hanging out with the science teacher and the, the students uh, doing science experiments, including because they were Victorian, getting high, uh, including with Henry Fawcett, who's Millicent Fawcett's uh, husband. Um, and they, he was working at this school, um, and he, he wasn't a fan of women's, uh, women having power, was Tyndall. So th this is one of the reasons why we think maybe he might have, have ripped off uh, foot, or maybe why he just never would have read anything by a woman in the first place, so that he wouldn't have ripped her off. Um, and the, the school he was working in, uh, the headmaster's wife was quite involved in the running of the school, and he got very annoyed at that. He didn't think that this was appropriate. So he left, and he hatched this plan with his friend, the science teacher, where they go to the University of Marburg, where they could work with um, Professor Bunsen, the man who invented the Bunsen burner. Um, and it meant, because in that, at that point in Germany, you could do a PhD if you hadn't already got a degree. So someone like Tyndall, who hadn't had the advantages to be able to go to a university, could go to jump all the way and do a PhD. And he came back to London a few years later with his PhD, and he, he really wanted a job in science, but there weren't many of them. So he had to build these huge networks and be part of networks and kind of make friends with the right people. And eventually he got a job here, a really plum job here at the Royal Institution, giving lectures and doing science here in the basement. And one of the many friends that he made to help him land this science job was a guy called Thomas Henry Huxley. Now, like Tyndall, Huxley's parents were members of the middle class that had fallen on hard times, and he had to also work really hard to, to be able to make a living from science at the time. And he did all sorts of other things. He's often known as Darwin's bulldog, because he really promoted evolution. Um, you can Google him yourself. The thing that I wanted to mention about Huxley and Tyndall is that Huxley built something called the X Club, which was a group of science, science friends, scientific friends, men, all men, who met monthly for dinner at a hotel just along from where we are here in the Royal Institution. And they gave themselves X-themed uh, nicknames. So it was the exalted Huxley and the eccentric Tyndall. And the X apparently stood for nothing in particular, to commit them to nothing in particular in a sort of scientific way. But it was very clear that they timed their dinners that they'd meet for uh, just before meetings of the Royal Society. And it was clear that they had an eye on kind of 
how they could influence the royal society and how they could help have more power for themselves and influence the, the discussions of the scientific establishment. And many of them went on to be leading players in the Victorian scientific uh, establishment. And I think one of the reasons I mentioned, the reason I mentioned this is that it's a good example of the sorts of networks that Foote couldn't be part of as a woman, but Tyndall, as a man from a relatively humble background, had to be part of in order to be able to make his way in science. And is one of the reasons why he was remembered and she was forgotten. Um, and his interest in climate change started with glaciers. Huxley was like, it was one day he was here, a Friday evening discourse in the Royal Institution, and he was playing with some slate, trying to work out why slate was slate. And Huxley was like, well, why don't you look at glaciers? That might help you understand slate. I'm going to Switzerland with my wife over the summer. Why don't you come? So he, he joined him, and he went, he went on this trip to the Wenganalp, and he just... Tyndall was just amazed. There's a lovely description of it in Roland's book about being amazed by how beautiful it was. And he was just fascinated by glaciers. And he came back to London, and he'd... he'd chop up lots of ice and pack it together on stage here, telling people in these great lectures uh, about what the ice was and, and you know, using the science of the day to understand what ice ages were and how these glaciers would have been created. And he got really into the chemistry of it and he started thinking about heat. And that's how he ended up doing research very similar to what Foote had done. He developed new equipment here in the basement below where I'm standing now in the Royal Institution. He developed his own really kind of technical equipment for measuring even very, very tiny differences in heat of gases. So Foote had just put some cylinders on with a thermometer in on her, on her windowsill, you know. Tyndall wanted to do it with a huge amount of detail, developed special new equipment to be able to, to measure even tiny differences in heat that previously no one had ever been able to detect. And he, he puzzled away for weeks, uh, trying out different gases. Um, so stories of him trying oxygen and nitrogen the main gases of our atmosphere, uh, of trying the, the coal gas from the light that was creating the lighting. And, and then that he realised, with the oxygen and nitro nitrogen, the heat just went through it. But the coal gas, it got trapped, trapped the heat and kept it. There's also these stories of him getting drunk with his, his lab assistants and getting them to drink beer and whiskey and then breathe out and then measure to see how much the heat went through. I don't know what he thought was in the atmosphere, but um, it's a nice story. <laughs> And he presented, he realised that carbon dioxide trapped a lot of heat, and he wrote about it. And in February 1861, he submitted a paper to the Royal Society, which you can still read online, it's, it's very readable, it's, it's nice to be able to go back and read these things from the scientists themselves, um, putting his study of heat in the context of ideas about ice ages, and suggesting that even a little bit, even a tiny change in the chemical composition of the atmosphere might have led to differences in temperatures in the Earth's past. Now, they still didn't, like, he didn't realise that this was going to be a big deal. Like, now, Tyndall, because he was remembered in a way that Foote wasn't until recently, there's a big scientific establishment, a big climate science research centre in the UK named after Tyndall, the Tyndall Centre. Um, we now think of this as incredibly important. At the time, he just thought it might help explain how glaciers were formed in the past. They had never, no idea that it might be about our future. It's only in retrospect that we look at either Foote or Tyndall as being significant. Now, we now know... Uh, that the oceans around them were already warming by the 1850s because of human action, but they had no way of telling it themselves. For them, it was all theory about the Earth's past. It wasn't anything about the Earth's future. And it wouldn't be for a few more decades with a Swedish scientist called Sventi Arrhenius. He, trivia fans would like to know that he is a relative of Greta Thunberg. He's most famous for inventing physical chemistry, and if any of you have suffered through studying physical chemistry after the age of 16, you've probably seen a picture of him in your textbook looking stern. But he was always into lots of different ideas, as well as the stuff that he's kind of formally remembered for. Uh, he just was one of these people who just, you know, one of these scientists who liked getting lots of different ideas. And um, in 1894, he married one of his students, which is always a bad idea. 
And a few years later, he got divorced. Now, some people deal with stressful breakups by eating a lot of ice cream. Some people get into running. Some people drunk dial their ex. Arrhenius found doing temperature calculations really soothing. Um, so he got into loads of temperature data, and he rediscovered this stuff that Tyndall had been saying, and he started, again, to be interested. A lot of his friends in the Swedish uh, Physics Society were getting into something called cosmic physics, which was basically natural history, but physics, and involved doing fun things like going up on balloon trips to the North Pole. And they'd been talking about the ice ages and why that had happened. And he kind of dug out this stuff from Tyndall, saying maybe it's a slight difference in the chemical composition of the atmosphere. And he decided to run the maths on that and work out, well, if we halve the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, how cold would it get? You know, they were still worried, like, how could the glaciers come back? Could the ice ages come back? How, he was Swedish. Understandably, he was worried about the cold. So like, how cold could it get? And he worked out that if you half the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the Earth's temperature could drop by about five degrees. And that was enough to bring on a, a new ice age. And then one of his friends said, what if, what if we increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? Just what if? So he did the maths again, and he worked out well, if we doubled the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, then the temperature of the Earth would rise by five or even six degrees Celsius. But it still didn't occur to anyone that this was something that, they was all, that could be done by humans, or that humans were already doing at that point. It still seemed to them as just, to them, humans, you know, they were having a huge amount more power on the Earth by this point. You know, they were digging up bits of it to burn coal, to make oil, making these huge uh, railways across land, you know, all the way across America, cutting it in two. Um, they were building steamships all around the Earth, but they didn't necessarily, you know, coughing through all the pollution that was causing. They didn't necessarily see themselves as being powerful enough to change the climate. They still felt that you know, only God would have that kind of power. And so it wasn't even until the very end of the 19th century when a friend of his went, you know, we are adding a lot of coal to the atmosphere, you know, a lot of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere with coal. This theory that you've got that if we doubled the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it could get hotter, this could actually happen. And he was like, maybe. And he slipped it in the reference to a book that he, he was writing about. It was actually about how life on Earth might have come to Earth from space, travelled through light. That was mainly what the book was about. But he had this reference in the middle of it just to how, you know, maybe because humans were producing so much carbon dioxide through burning coal, maybe in a few centuries it might get a bit hotter. Again, he didn't think it was a problem. He thought maybe it would be a good thing. Not long after he did this, there seemed to be some lab research that suggested that actually it wasn't, the carbon dioxide theory of global warming wasn't true. You know, it's one thing if uh, Foote with her windowsill or Tyndall in the basement of the, of the Royal Institution doing research in a kind of very rarefied way to study these gases and how much they absorbed heat. But in the much more complex system of the atmosphere, it looked as if it wasn't true. Now, we now know that that research wasn't true either, but in the 1910s, the best laboratory research there was looked as if this idea didn't really work. And so a few scientists, when Arrhenius had mentioned this thing, kind of picked up on it. There was a particularly American scientist, Chamberlain, who was an expert on the Ice Ages, incorporated it into his ideas of the Ice Ages. And then he eventually started to, to uh, express quite a lot of regret, saying, oh, I, I should never have been taken in by this. It was just a theory, and it, it's proved wrong. And so for several decades, it, looked, it was just kind of thrown out, really, as a theory. Now, climate... Um, Science wasn't going to sit still, though, in this period, even if they were going to forget about carbon emissions. Um, I'm just going to... This is a lovely book about uh, scientists doing stuff about water, but particularly the atmosphere, and there's loads about climate science in it. It's recently written by Sarah Dry, who's famous for recently in the news for quitting the Science Museum for political reasons, which is 
you should Google her, she's interesting. She wrote this great book, Waters of the World, and she's got this lovely story in it of a guy called Gilbert Walker. And I want to just tell you a little bit about that before I go back to the carbon dioxide problem, because I think it, it says quite a lot about climate science and meteorology at the time, and it's linked to colonialism. Now, he'd, Gilbert Walker was a guy who'd grown up in Croydon, and he got his dad was the borough engineer, known for his pioneering use of concrete. Um, he got a scholarship to St Paul's School, and he'd gone to Trinity College, and he'd been a mathematician, and he specialised in the maths of boomerangs. And he was adapting his work on the maths of boomerangs to golf, when someone said, hey, would you like to join the colonial office and go to India and study meteorology? So he took up the job. Um, now, they wanted someone to do some maths on monsoons in India uh, because there'd been a lot of drought. Um, there'd been a, a huge famine because of the drought uh, at, just a few years before. So Gilbert Walker turned up in India in 1903, and it was a few years before. There'd been a huge drought, well, about a decade before, the end of the 19th century. It's hard to tell exactly how many people had died, but the Lancet at the time estimated 19 million people had died because of the famine, because of the drought. Now, disasters like that are never natural, and in this case, Britain had over dismantled uh, traditional systems of grain storage and mutual support, which would have otherwise have supported people through uh, bad weather. And it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't the first time they'd had this problem either. There had been a big famine in the 1870s, and the viceroy then, Lord Lytton, had said, events like this happen every now and again. It's, it balances the population and keeps grain prices high. He saw it as natural, um, and he saw it as a way of stopping overpopulation which was a belief that a lot of people in his time uh, felt that a lot of people believed in uh, as a concern and worried about. It's also something that influenced the modern uh, growth of the modern environmentalist movement, worries about population, maybe not quite as cruelly put in the way that Lord Lytton did, but in some ways actually that cruel, well into the 20th century and is still around in parts of it today. And it's, it's, when my book dives into the history of the Green Movement, it talks about this and about eugenics and how they intersected in the beginning of the 20th century. I'm not going to talk about this today, but I think it's important that we do recognise that these forces were kind of patterning how people were working in the climate sciences. You know, I've got a hopeful story of people discovering things and giving us knowledge, and it seems like they're just wonderful heroes, but, you know, they were problematic people too, and they were they were researching these things sometimes for problematic reasons. Anyway, they'd, they'd had this, uh, this another famine, and the British government finally felt that they should, they should study monsoons, they should learn more about it. They'd initially tried a techno fix and bought loads more trains. They decided that's what India needed, it needed more trains. But the trains just moved grain to where people could afford grain, and therefore, again, the richer people made money and the poorer people died. Eventually, they said, right, we'll invest in monsoons. And they got this, uh, this guy, Gilbert Walker, to a place in Shimla, which was where the, the British summer capital was, where they had the meteorological research. And he found a centre that was full of, um, full of data that came from... There was thousands of rain gauges across India that had been set up that fed data into this. And there were a couple of other observatories that did more data on things like temperature and uh, wind and stuff like that. And he came and he was really kind of fascinated. By, he's a mathematician. He's like, there's loads of numbers to play with. Um, but he wanted to be able to do something more with these numbers. And so he was also aware... You know, his man was an expert in boomerangs, how he like, was trying to get his head around the monsoons. But he kind of thought, right, I'm going to put my mind to it. What am I going to do? I need to learn more about this stuff. And he sent people out to the, um, the coastal towns, the harbours, to get ship's logs data so he could pull more data in. And he also thought... Well, a monsoon comes from the ocean. It doesn't just come from India. You know, India itself is so huge. It has so much different weather and so much data we can collect from it, but it's still just one country. And so he started to interact with uh, kind of his colleagues in other parts of the British Empire and bring in data from 
uh, from South America, from Africa, from Australia, from Europe, and bring all this data together and, and try and think about what was going on in India in this larger system. So again, like I talked about earlier, this thing from John Ruskin about trying to imagine meteorology as for the world. And um, Walker managed to do that using the patterns of the, the British Empire. And this is something that if you've studied like history of botany, you'll see how you know, people moved stuff around the world and had a global vision of, of, of biology very much through networks of colonialism. And this is true in climate science as well. And I think it was one of the things that went right in this book challenged sort of my, some of my assumptions. I think when we think about whole world thinking and imagining the world as a whole, we think of this hippie thing of cooperation and everyone working together, especially when we think of it in a modern scientific way as people cooperating. But actually, this was a whole world vision based on colonial values of control. Uh, and these have all of these, I mean, this ran alongside scientific principles of cooperation as well. You know, there were lots of people coming at it from a much sort of kind of morally, uh, I don't know, depends on your, your moral position, but morally good perspective. But they mixed in together. And our current version of like the whole world and thinking about the world as a whole actually has quite a lot of ideological, different ideological roots, some of which come from this colonial history. And we should recognize that history in it. Uh, and the thing that Gilbert Walker is most famous for was he put all this data together and he went, oh, it's just so much data, I need better maths. And Sarah Dreiner book says it's probably an advantage that he was an expert in boomerangs, not on monsoons, because he wasn't weighed down by any of the theory that other meteorologists had. All he had was his maths. And so he, he took a, um, a statistical device that someone called uh, Carl Pearson had developed called a correlation coefficient to find patterns. And a, a, a guy called Napier Shaw, who'd be the first professor of meteorology at Imperial College uh, and wrote many textbooks on meteorology, would say it's a kind of searchlight for sweeping the meteorological horizon. You know, meteorologists for years have collected all this data uh, in the way that people like Fitzroy done. They got piles and piles of data, but they hadn't really been able to, to find, use maths to be able to get through it to find the patterns. And people like Walker, with their new statistical techniques, put in, uh, managed to pull those out. Uh, now, a footnote on this is that this device had come from Pearson, um, who was a, a statistician in London, and mates with Francis Galton, who had been the one who'd sort of put the foot in to uh, Fitzroy all those years before. Uh, Fitzroy, uh, Galton and Pearson were friends, and in fact, when Galton died, he left a lot of his estate to UCL to set up a Galton professorship of eugenics, which Carl, per Carl Pearson was the first Galton professor for. Um, now, Pearson was even more of a racist than Galton, which was, you know, Galton was quite a racist. Um, and uh, last year, UCL, after many, many, many years of uh, campaigns from students and staff, uh, announced that they would uh, change the names of the lecture theatres there that are named after Pearson and Galton. Um, so again, we should remember that history and that. Now, the link between global warming and carbon dioxide hadn't entirely disappeared in this. Um, there's this thing that goes viral every now and again. People send it to me on the internet and go, Alice, have you seen this? And I go, yes, I've seen this. Which is a report from a New Zealand newspaper about coal consumption might be creating... All our burning of coal might be warming the planet. And this is from 1912. It seems to have come from a longer piece in Popular Mechanics magazine, um, which sort of reflects, it's, a, it's worth digging out online, it's really quite alarming but interesting uh, long feature in popular mechanics. This sense, the writer sort of comes from it point of view going, look at the temperature data and going, it is getting warmer and there's a sense amongst old people that just, weather isn't like what it used to be, you know, our winter, we don't have the good old winters we used to have where we were freezing cold, uh, where is all our snow? Um, and they started to look back to this thing that a Swedish scientist called Arrhenius had said a few years ago, that maybe burning coal might warm the climate. Now, popular mechanics is never one to pour pessimism on 
progress or technology. Um, so they saw it, like a lot of other people at the time, as to the good. And this is an incredible quote from this. I'm going to read you. It's typical American popular science of the time. It is largely the courageous, enterprising, and ingenious American whose brains are changing the world. Yet even the dull foreigner who burrows in the earth by the faint gleam of his miner's lamp not only supports his family and helps feed the consuming furnaces of modern industry, but by his toil in the dirt and darkness adds to the carbon dioxide in the earth's atmosphere so that men and generations to come shall enjoy milder breezes and live under sunnier skies. And reading this, I find this, particularly reading it like, in a heat wave now, I'm like, yeah, I am living under that sunniest day, and I'm not happy about it. Um, but they all thought this was for the good. Um, later that summer, Scientific American also dug out some more research like this, and it was repeated in a few sort of science bits, bits of the science media at the time. Um, and so when Guy Callender came back to this in, 18, in 1938, it hadn't entirely gone away, but it was still seen as slightly fringe science. It was the sort of things that you know, popular mechanics might dig out every now and again, but you know, they, they weren't so sure about it from the scientists. And, and he went and gave this paper at um, the Royal Meteorological Society in 1938. Um, and you can read it still in the Royal Meteorological Society's um, journal. It's online, you can read it, and it's published. He presented it probably just down the road from here, actually, um, at their offices uh, in a conference. And people ask questions afterwards, and it's printed with the questions and answers after it. So you get a bit of insight into kind of the way it was seen at the time. Um, and you can tell that the meteorologists, they just didn't take him seriously. He was, I mean, he wasn't, you could tell, you could have got this impression that they had spent so much time trying to professionalise their business, kicking out people like Zadkill, kicking out people like Fitzroy. They were serious meteorologists. They, you know, developed this coalition, co you know, correlation coefficient from Carl Pearson, and they were serious, and they had their data, and they were working on it. And there's this helpful mathematician who works in the fossil fuel industry who's telling them something that they don't really believe in. Um, there's one comment in it where they thank, um, they thank uh, Mr calendar for his courageous work. You know, <laughs> courageous being British scientists speak for absolutely ludicrous behaviour. Um, uh, uh, but he gave as good as he got. Like At one point, one of them said he'd ignored the natural movements of carbon dioxide, the kind of natural carbon cycle of, of trees absorbing carbon and stuff. And he said, I've actually written an account of these. It's just eight times as long as this paper. Um, and you could, you know, he'd grown up with his dad as a physicist at uh, Imperial College. He'd grown up fighting about science with his dad and his brother who stuck needles in his eyes and his dad's friends. He kind of knew how to have these fights. Um, but they, they kind of laughed him out of the room. He went to war the following year, and he ended up working for the Petroleum Warfare Department, sharing a patent for something called FIDO, which is not a dog, but stands for Fog Investigation Dispersal Operations, which burnt, basically learnt, burnt a load of petrol to clear fog uh, so that planes could land in poor weather. And there's something of the kind of tragic comedy of this. It always haunts me all the time I've been writing this book. I always think about this. You know, the academy, the scientific establishment threw out his work on anthropogenic global warming. Um, so he went to work burning as much fossil fuel as he could in order to try and control the weather. Um, but he wasn't entirely forgotten, and he was picked up after the war. Um, while he'd been in his shed... Uh, with weather calculations, there'd been a huge expansion of American meteorology in the 1930s, much of it led by a Swedish scientist called Carl Rossby. Um, weather scientists weren't just going up in balloons like Glacier anymore, they were flying through planes uh, through the sky, and also the Americans' military's uh, interest in planes meant that they were also interested a lot more in meteorology and funded a lot of, of work by Rossby and his students and his colleagues, because if you were flying through the skies, you needed to know more about what was going on in those skies. Uh, and this led to a huge growth in, in uh, particularly flight-related uh, American meteorology. 
Also, the war and the Manhattan Project building the bomb led to a huge expansion of American science. And post-war, there was a huge amount of money went into American science, which opened up loads more opportunities. There were also new technologies like computers, techniques like carbon dating. And this was a great landing uh, point for the rediscovery of Canada's work in the 1950s. And so in 1956, a century after Foote's paper, American oceanographer Roger Revelle would brief Congress for the first time on the issue, uh, calling for more investment in climate science. And he called for uh, the establishment of a project to measure data in Hawaii, measure carbon dioxide levels in Hawaii, which is how we got that graph I showed you at the beginning. That is why that starts in 1958, because in 1956, a guy called Roger Revelle had rediscovered Callender's work and done more work on it and gone, oh, whoops. Um, he had better techniques, he had better equipment, he could really look at it in a level, in a way that Calendar wouldn't have been able to. And other people had started to reevaluate it and accept it. And so he briefed Congress, said, he said, we are uh, undertaking a giant geophysical experiment on the Earth, which is where I get the title for my book, Our Biggest Experiment. And he lobbied for funding. Uh, and we still, in that lab in, uh, in Hawaii, they're still recording... Uh, carbon dioxide levels to this day. It's incredible that as a research project, it's been going on that long, which I guess gives us another number as well uh, to go with our 1.02 degrees global warming. We're also at 416.7 parts per million carbon dioxide. Um, that is how much carbon dioxide there is in the atmosphere. For every million bits of the atmosphere, there's 417 bits of carbon dioxide. And that might not seem very much, uh, but as Tyndall said, you know, standing here in, in 1861, even the tiniest little change in the chemical composition of the atmosphere can bring about quite dramatic changes to the climate. There's a parallel story to all of this, how humans made that warming, emitted all that carbon, and I don't have time for it today, but it's in the book, and it is a slightly more depressing, and uh, it's certainly much more a story of, con of control and exploitation than cooperation and uh, discovery. And that too is, though, a multidisciplinary, multi-generational, multinational effort. Uh, people cannot, you know, we have only been able to, to emit the amount of car humans have only been able to emit the amount of carbon they have because they've worked together. I mean, they often have done it through exploitation as opposed to cooperation. Um, but it's because of networks of people working together that we have this kind of impact on the planet. And, uh, and so having started with a number and teased out some people behind it, I'm going to finish with one of my other favorite climate graphs I showed you at the beginning. It's one that pulls together numbers about, uh, about many, many people, which is this one from Oxfam which emphasizes, shows you that it's the richest 10% of the world's population that are responsible for almost half of total, what they call lifestyle consumption emissions. So it's things like driving SUVs or flying, which means that they're just quite so giant. Uh, so we've been left a lot of resources from all this work that people like Tyndall and Foot and Fitzroy and um, Calendar and Ravel have left us, you know, people like Celsius and all those people messing around with temperature gauges, sticking their hands in hot water to try and make the first thermometers. We've been left a lot of resources and knowledge and we should make the most of that. But we have also been left a huge mess and it's a huge unequal mess. Uh, so it's time to put those resources to work and do something about it. Wow, thanks so much, Alice. That was just absolutely fascinating and uh, so many amazing stories that I'm sure you go into more detail in, in the book as well. Um, one thing that, that I was thinking as I was sat there, and I couldn't work it out, and maybe you'll be able to help me, it's more of a scientific question than anything, is 
during Tyndall's time, he, you know, you said he sort of worked out the, the small change in the carbon dioxide, but did he know how much carbon dioxide was in the air, or did that only come later when Lord Rayleigh was liquefying all of air and all of that here um, a few decades after that, or did he know at all how much carbon dioxide there was in the air? There were bits, there were projects. I didn't look too much into the history of that, so I don't have it off the top of my head, but my understanding was that people were measuring that because they were interested in it. I mean, people were doing the same project Foot was doing because they're just interested in the world. They didn't need a reason to do it. So people were doing that. And when Callender did his work in the, in the 1930s, he had data sets, particularly from Kew, uh, where there was a lot of weather research that was done at Kew. Francis Galton, when he was complaining about Fitzroy being able to have the great job at uh, the Met office, you know, he was working with Q, and they also did things like measure carbon dioxide levels. It just wasn't done in the kind of really, we didn't have very good data on that until the 50s, and people like Rossby and Ravel kind of recognised that carbon dioxide was an issue, and that the data on that was nowhere near as good as it was on weather and temperature, um, so set up this project in Hawaii. I mean, there were lots of other projects that had been set up in the 30s and kind of developing, just because people were interested in it, uh, and so there were, yeah, I don't think Tyndall would have had great records on it, but there were projects to, to be interested in that. So they would have worked out via sort of a chemical experimental kind of method or something. You have to ask for it probably Jackson. involves titration. That would be my uh, answer. Um, there's a few people in the, in the chat, um, which I just thought I'd throw some of, the, some of the points people are making, and thank you all for all your comments and uh, discussion online. S. McNeil says this, and I, I have a slight anecdote about it as well. Uh, they say, in the 1970s, I remember reading several articles that predicted we were heading for another ice age. And I actually have a memory of this. I have a memory of like a kids-ish, teenager-ish science book that I had which had this sort of page on climate and weather on it, and it had, like, you know, climate, you know, carbon dioxide or whatever. And then there was, like, a did-you-know box, and it says some scientists think that the world's going to get much cooler and we're going to have to cover the, you know, ice caps with black, you know, bin liners to warm everything up or something. And, and it's interesting, that was still, yeah, in, that must have been sort of late 80s, early 90s. So, so when did like this idea of we're going to go into another ice age and we're actually going to be suffering global cooling really disappear and, and become just an entirely fringe view? So one of the things when you read the, the kind of peer review of, of Calendar in 38 is that people were, they, by that point they believed the world was warming. They just weren't sure why and whether it was a temporary thing. And they kind of thought there was also forces of cooling. And there was a question about whether, you know, which force was going to win. <laughs> um, and whether these, you know, was it just, I mean, that, the temperatures do check the El Nino effect and things like that. They kind of, people were a sense of like, which one was which one we need to worry about more um, and that goes through uh you know in the 40s you've got american military kind of measuring icebergs thinking oh is they shrinking does that mean we need to change our tactics about how we fight with the russians and stuff there was an accepted <laughs> sense that um it was the icebergs were melting and that the world was getting warmer but that people did wonder and they also wondered if burning fossil fuels would make things cooler because of air pollution and so when you see the early, level, early sort of modern stage of climate science that kind of happened in the 50s onwards, you see people investigating both processes of cooling and heating. Um, generally, people were more worried about heating and thought that that was the thing. But the cooling stuff sort of stuck around. And in the 70s, you had a bit of a fight uh, between what was known as the warmest and the coolest. Um, in fact, uh, I read, I reread this recently. It's a CIA report on global on climate change from the early 70s, and it's it's talking about climate change and how we need to be worried about it, and that it's caused by human action. But it seems it's almost more worried about global cooling than global warming. Uh, and at the time, that was sort of global warming was sort of growing in acceptance, but the global the coolest was still around. Um, and the word, the term global warming was actually coined in 1975 in a paper which looked at some records 
um, from research that could take use chemical analysis to go all the way back thousands of years in time and show that, yeah, this is serious warming that we, we're going through. You know, that we've had periods of cooling and warming, but this is a trend of warmth and kind of establish that, yeah, it's the global warming that's the problem, not cooling. Uh, that was 1975, Wally Brooker, and that's when the phrase was coined. So you would have still seen coolists being discussed, and so they might well be in a children's book in the 80s. Um, there was also a lot of concern in the 80s about... Um, nuclear winter and about whether nuclear weapons could create um, nu uh, nuclear winter, a new kind of ice age. And so you see that kind of concern coming up and becoming part of the popular discourse and kind of interrupting. Uh, I don't talk about it in my book because I just decided it was a bit of a like side thing that was going to confuse people, but it did kind of derail a bit uh, conversations about climate change in the 80s and 90s. It's still, you still see it in, in climate sceptic discourse, people will talk about it. Mm. And, and the other thing as well that at the time, I sort of remember being a kid in the 90s, that global warming was kind of lumped in with these other problems that were all sort of emerging at the time as well. So I, don't, I, don't know if, I mean, some people in the chat were also mentioning things like the ozone hole and CFCs um, and these other things, or like acid rain, that was really big. Does that still... I have no idea if that's still a thing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, so it was, it's just interesting that these, these problems also kind of got mixed together with other environmental things around pollution more generally, I think. They did, and I think one of the reasons why the environmental movement was maybe a little bit late in picking up climate change as an explicit thing they campaigned on was because they were so busy campaigning <laughs> on all the other things, which was also because in the 80s there was a bit of an assault on environmental legislation in America. So if you were WWF America or Sierra Club or any of the, the organisations that might have been campaigning on climate change, you probably had someone who was interested in climate change in your office trying to build a campaign on climate change, but you're fighting so many other... The destruction of the rainforest, um, so many other things... Uh, I'd say that the ozone layer, one of the things about the discovery of the hole in the ozone layer and then the actions that were taken with the Montreal Treaty is that heavily influenced in scientists in climate science and they thought, right, we've managed to collect together scientific knowledge on this thing that's happening in the sky that's dangerous, that's done by humans. How could we collect together similar ways of, of speaking truth to power? And so things like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was set up in the late 1980s, partly modelled on the ways in which scientific advice was given on CFCs. Um, and so it, it, it was part of the story. It was wrapped up in it. And in many ways, I guess we kind of should be thankful for that, that process sort of helped lead the way for some of the processes we have today on climate change. But the difference is, of course, I think the hole in the ozone layer is actually, you know, we've kind of banned CFCs and the, the hole's kind of repairing itself and stuff's getting a bit better, I think. You're looking at me slightly sceptical. Well, is that they, not true? They, well, <laughs> there's still, a, you know, illegal trade in CFCs. The other thing is, it's not really a hole. I don't know what the best metaphor would be. Like, maybe, I, sometimes I ask scientists, is it, was it more of a graze? There was a bit, basically, the word hole seems to have come from a NASA press release. And thank goodness for that NASA press release, of the you know, press officer who called it a hole, because that... You think of a hole, you think of something you need to fix. Yeah. There's a hole in my bucket, I need to fix it. If they'd said there's a graze, we might have gone, oh, it'll heal over, won't it? Just leave it be. <laughs> and so I, like, I'm a, a, a you know, science com nerd. I just think like, the power of that metaphor and how history could have been different if they just picked a different metaphor. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, they recognise at the time, if you read stuff from people in the 80s about when they set up the systems for scientific advice about climate change, they knew it was much bigger than uh, CFCs. But they were still up against powerful industry, hmm. uh, whole structures of consumers using things. They knew it. there were similarities. Uh, I'm going to ask my own personal nerve point. Did you mention Thomas Midgley in your uh, book? No. Do you want to tell everyone about Thomas Midgley? Oh, he's just my favourite. Um, in case you don't know, he's like the best bad scientist ever because he's responsible for two things. Not only is he responsible for CFCs, 
you know, pretty bad. He also thought it would be a great idea to put lead in petrol. So he's like the same guy is responsible for these two, and both of them, weirdly, were like environmental campaigns yeah. in the sort of late 80s, early 90s well, to I mean, get rid of both of them. He doesn't make it into the book, but I would say that one of the things about the history of the oil industry's interaction with climate change is that it was foreshadowed, and in many ways they built on the successes they'd had about fighting things to do with air pollution. And so, that, like, the... You know, there's a it's there's a there's a history that's shared with his story as well. I mean, I just it's I didn't mention because I've got so many other characters and it's all just. Um, I know we're kind of slightly over time here, but I thought I think we've got on. Does anyone have a question for Alice while we're here, just uh, before uh, before we finish? Anything we can close out on, the gentleman there? So uh, yeah, that's that's about it from me, Alice. Before we go, uh, would you like to tell anyone uh, apart from the book? Where else can people find you? You're on Twitter, on you got a homepage or anything? People can find you. Um, my day job, I should say, my day job is uh, I work for a climate charity to try and fix some of these problems. So you can find out about that work. It's called Possible, and our website is wearepossible.org. Thanks and good night. Cheers. That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please remember to leave us a rating and review. And you can dive deeper into the topic by getting Alice's book, Our Biggest Experiment, A History of the Climate Crisis. Head to rigb.org to see what talks we have coming up soon. <laughs>